Icons. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Dr. Ecklog's journey to entrepreneurial and professional success was not an easy road. As a teenager, Dr. Ecklog led political violence in Ethiopia, which led him to become especially active in philanthropic organizations later in life. Dr. Ecklog is a member of the New York Executive Committee, the Africa Advisory Committee, and the Human Rights Watch, serving on its board of directors. In addition, he's board chairman of the Boston ECG Project Charitable Foundation, a nonprofit corporation whose purpose is to save the lives of children and adolescents by preventing sudden cardiac death and identifying occult underlying cardiac abnormalities and conditions. And previously, he served on Barack Obama's National Finance Committee in 2008. Dr. Eklog has been a heart surgeon for more than 20 years and received his degree from Harvard University in Physics and his MD degree from Harvard Medical School. He completed surgical training at Harvard's Brigham and Women's Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital, Harefield Hospital London, and L'Hôpital Broussard, Paris. He is also a prolific entrepreneur and innovator, having started many impactful companies, including PabMed and Lucid Diagnostics that he took public on NASDAQ. What an honor to have you on the podcast, Dr. Acklog. Welcome to the conversation. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Look forward to a fun conversation. Well, maybe you could take me through your journey and maybe if you could add a focus on the process behind your decisions. To start, when did you decide to go into medicine or just the whole field of health sciences and why? So that, that story actually starts way back to my youth. You know, my father was a prominent physician in Ethiopia. He trained here in the U.S., actually went to medical school in Beirut at, at the American University of Beirut, which is a, was a big theater for the medical community in Ethiopia. Many of the, most of the prominent physicians when I grew up were graduates of his cohort of classes in the mid-50s. And he um, trained here in the U.S., went back and became the first cardiologist in Ethiopia. And wow. so so he was quite a, you know, he was a very prominent guy. Everybody, you know, knew him. Every, he was the one who got the call, you know, often heading out in the middle of the night to, to help people out. And so there was an assumption that I was going to follow in his footsteps and be a doctor. And I resisted that <laughs> for a long time. I was enamored with math and physics. I went to, got to work at a physics laboratory in suburban Chicago, but at Fermilab, not too far oh, from Oh, sure. Guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, spent, I got to spend time there as a high school student, basically hobnobbing with future Nobel Prize winners, which was insane. Absolutely. The, the heart of uh, Enrico Fermi uh, exactly. territory. In Batavia. <laughs> so I did that through college. And then actually it was really one summer, my ju- my yeah, the summer before my junior year, where I had the opportunity for the first time since we had fled to go back to Ethiopia. And I spent time with my dad and his colleagues, and I actually got asked to give a, a talk to the local Rotary Club in Ethiopia on lasers in medicine, right? So physics, the lasers part, part of it, and talking to a bunch of mostly local prominent physicians. And I came back after that. I said, okay, I'm, I sort of said uncle. I gave, a, I gave in and <laughs> said, really, you know, my future is more in... It's sort of you know the human the human side of it. I still think like a physicist. There, there's you, you can't take that sort of out of my brain. But I decided I wanted to work in an area that serviced more directly serviced um, people. So I did my uh, pre med sort of and and uh, and went off and, and applied to medical school. Oh, that's that's a really interesting journey. And do you think today, just fast forwarding to today, I mean, when you think about biotech of the future, physics plays a prominent role, you know, in, in the, the biocentry, wouldn't you say? Any comments oh, or thoughts it, on that? Yeah, it's actually remarkable how much I use uh, my physics background in, in certainly the med tech work that we do. Uh, there are products that I've, uh, that I'm the co-inventor on where I did the kind of the core math <laughs> underlying the mechanics of it, which I like to do, although now the, now my team just sort of 
doesn't let me do that anymore. And one thing we've learned is that physics and engineering are not the same thing. <laughs> at the end of the day, you have to let the engineers do the work. But no, and, and even even before when I chose a specialty, I chose heart surgery because, you know, the cardiovascular system, unlike, let's say, you know, stuff that used to make my head spin, like endocrinology and mm-hmm. immunology, which are like really biology. Yeah. Uh, there's not a shred of physics in those, as <laughs> far as I can recall. But the cardiovascular system is, you know, pumps and blood flow is, you know, fluid flow and tubes and resistances and so forth. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of math and physics in that. So I chose to go into heart surgery, you know, partly I think I was attracted to it because I could sort of understand it, you know, with with my physics background. What then, as you continued your journey and deciding to move in the direction toward the medical degree and then your role, you know, focused on, on the heart, what ultimately got you driving toward the startup world and maybe talk a little bit about the transition, some of the things that you learned in practice and then how you applied that to, and what, what drove you to kind of move in the direction of, of starting companies? Yeah. There was actually a bit of a preview of that. I probably was actually, I forgot to mention, you know, the little hiccup after I decided to apply to medical school, I was here on a student visa and I was not eligible. I got into several medical schools and they all said, hey, look forward to seeing you in September. Please deposit $180,000 in this escrow account by July. <laughs> and I was in the second half, really towards the end of my senior year, and I had no way to pay for medical school. Mm-hmm. So I had basically decided that I wouldn't be able to go to medical school. And I, I there was a large push at the time for the kind of, this is the first time the quantitative sort of nerdy guys were going to Wall Street. There was a transition uh, from what was almost historically all just sort of deal guys, right? The quants. The quants, yeah. And so I think, I don't remember the percentage, but it was a significant percentage of the Harvard physics majors actually took jobs on Wall Street instead of going off and doing physics. And so I applied to Wall Street. So I actually was roaming Wall Street as a senior undergrad decades before I ended up doing, put it being in the position to do the same thing to raise money for our work. Fortunately, uh, late in the summer, literally weeks before school was supposed to start, Harvard came through and said, you know what, we'll figure out a way to make up the fact that you don't qualify for these government loans and we'll figure out a way for you to go. And I was really fortunate. So I, my Wall Street career didn't begin, you know. It started later on. You you would return later in life. Yeah, pushed it (laughs) off several decades. So, but the transition to entrepreneurship was really a gradual one. Throughout my, the the time I was a practicing heart surgeon at academic medical centers across the country, I was very active in industry. I was just naturally attracted to new technology. People used to joke, I don't know if you remember those life serial ads, you know, where Hey, Mikey will try it, right? Every time there was some new technology, yes. oh, yeah. some rep would come into the to the medical. My, my boss, you know, the chairman of the department would say, I don't know, Leeshawn will try that. Go show that to Leeshawn. Because <laughs> I, I was Mikey. exactly, I was always the guy that, that was trying sort of new tech and new gizmos in, in the in the field. So I was always attracted to that. I mm. worked closely with a large medical. I was on multiple medical advisory boards for large companies. I would get solicited by startups to help them. And then it was really a gradual process over time where I started developing some of my own ideas, you know, sort of in a ham-fisted way, started doing disclosures and trying to file IP and without really knowing sort of what I was doing. And um, that sort of gradually evolved and it really culminated at a point in 2008 when a longtime colleague of my of ours, my me and my partner Brian De Guzman, who's a for, also a heart surgeon, just showed up. Um, and we thought he was just coming to to hang out and have dinner. He showed up and said, "I'd like to to develop. I'd like to um, um, build a medical device sort of enterprise from scratch with you guys." And so the three of us joined forces. We created an entity called Pavilion. We started putting in some of our own in- inventions into it and picked one and created a company that we launched uh, while we were still practicing surgery. So for the first uh, okay. almost four years, over four years, I was doing heart surgery full-time and trying to build companies and uh, collaboration. Your side hustle? Yes, yeah, more a bit of a side <laughs> hustle. Uh, we sold Vortex yeah. to Angel Dynamics in 2012, and it was at that point I decided there, there's a there, the one of my favorite TV shows was Boardwalk Empire, and there was a line that kind of came to mind, which is that the guy, the the lead guy, said, "You can't be half a gangster. You basically have to be, able, <laughs> but you have to pick either your full time gangster or not." I felt the same way about heart surgery. You can't, you can't be half a heart surgeon. So both me and Brian De Guzman um, kind of hung up our scalpels and decided 
to jump all in and, and do medical medical technology entrepreneurship full time. Well, as you kind of got that going, it seemed though as though you likely were using already in the beginning an unconventional path to funding, you know, a high tech startup. In that, I would imagine you were kind of, um, you know, funding it yourself. Uh, is that is that fair to say? And, yeah, and if I so, think- um, did that then lead to and maybe guide the arc of your? Um, of the of the remainder of your of your journey to date with regards to how you looked at, you know, taking the innovation, um, building the companies, but then you know you've had some interesting um, financing strategies along yeah. the way that yeah. I'd lo- love to, the audience to learn more about as yeah. well. So we, have, I'll tell you a bit of the evolution of that. The first chapter, the Pavilion Holdings Group, the one I just mentioned that we started, was funded with basically boutique VC capital. Kind of our, our model was we raised two to three million dollars per startup. These were super lean, one employee, completely outsourced, you know, just trying to drive towards regulatory clearance. And that enterprise just spun out three commercial companies with commercial products, one of which got acquired. The difference, it was still VC funding, but what we focused on was just getting one round to get us to an inflection point. You know, gotcha. it's not, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had already started balking, to be frank, at the standard, you know, seed, A, B, C, D, you know, alphabet soup approach to things. And, and we used to joke, we used to, we used to joke that, okay, this is our A round and our Z round. So <laughs> right. yeah, the idea was to just try to try to try to get there. Now, you know, those companies later did raise, Vortex didn't, but the, but one of the other, two of the other companies did raise subsequent rounds, but it was for commercial growth. So we were in that, in that mode after we sold Vortex and we, st- we, we sat down, I literally moved back to New York and I literally kind of wandered figuratively and literally Wall Street to figure out how to finance the next chapter in an enterprise. And what you've already hinted at is that ultimately your financing strategy will determine the path that you take. And, you know, although we were grateful to the VC capital that we had raised, we, we did come to the conclusion that it was a little bit, didn't fit our model very well. That the VC model was, you know, again, multiple rounds, here's more money, here's more money. And we were so kind of frugal in our in our approach with capital efficiency, it wasn't a great fit. And well, we and, found- and oftentimes that approach is just for our audience is not founder friendly in the sense exactly. that you know, right out of the gates, <laughs> if, if you're putting in a lot of uh, so-called dilutive capital, yeah. meaning the owners, you know, get diluted, then as you point out, Getting to cash flow positive can be an exit where you're creating that value inflection point, but oftentimes you need more capital, NABC round, yeah. IPO, whatever the case might be. And but if you start with a large uh, round and and the founders are diluted, you know, to a very low level, then you know you start to lose kind of influence and the economic upside if something good happens with with the company. Yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly right. So we 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 had a we could see it around us. We knew physician entrepreneurs, friends of ours who had on paper built successful companies that had successful, you know, nine plus figure exits bought by some large strategic. And you go through the math and they, you know, all that, all of that upside went to the late investors that the founders and early investors basically would get wiped out. And so we, you know, we were cognizant of that. We were wary of this, of this path. And we felt that there wasn't good alignment. I mean, you know, frankly, when we sold Vortex, our first company, we were not aligned with, with our funders. They wanted to pause, even though it was a 10x return for them. They wanted to put more capital in instead of taking the return and moving on. And we and we sort of had to insist on it because we knew there was still some significant clinical risk in developing the product. We thought it was the right time to get out. So when it came time to look at the second, I, I looked at everything. I had a, I had term sheets from hedge funds, just kind of was looking at, uh, at alternatives. And the other challenge we had is our model was different. We were looking to take these single product companies that we had that model we created and consolidated into a single company that was a single vehicle that could take multiple products without being pigeonholed in any particular specialty. It was sort of a, a bit of a crazy, uh, audacious um, idea. Yeah, and- but I mean, on paper, it does make a good sense to have a pipeline strategy, right? I mean, if you think about it just from a big picture business perspective, diversifying and yeah. building a pipeline makes a lot of financial sense. However, it's a departure from what you're used to seeing on Wall Street in the venture community, right? Because there's so Absolutely. much focus around one product. Yeah. And a lot of times, not to fault, you know, the financiers here, it's usually a function of how much money it takes, you know, to get one product to those value inflection points. So oftentimes then you default to a company in in the space 
tends to be a single product company and there's binary risk in that. But to build a pipeline company, I'm really you know intrigued with your story and the approach you've taken because I think long term that makes you know so much strategic sense. But the challenges and the headwinds that you must have faced yeah. in convincing you know these more conventional investors used to the one product company, I wonder you know what what was their reaction and and what was that like kind of yeah. getting through that. You definitely checked all the points, which is that, although I must say that a good part of our our incentive for doing this was that we just wanted to have more fun. I mean, it's more fun to work on multiple things and not be pigeonholed, I mean, you know, in one thing and having to beat on that for seven years and and face that binary risk, which we, we'd also seen. So the fact is that we didn't. Um, we didn't end up convincing traditional investors mm -hmm. to do this. We had, as I mentioned, we had one large term sheet from a large hedge fund. And at the end of the day, it just didn't work out. I mean, in order for them to kind of make their numbers work, their ROI, you know, projected ROIs and so forth, there was just so much additional baggage <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to, to this, you know, waterfalls and various preferreds and things like that, where we would be giving up a lot of control as to the direction of the portfolio. That was really important to us that we maintained control of the portfolio, that we had the ability when we got new ideas, some deal flow through our connections in academic medicine, that we could pounce on them if we chose to. And it's very hard to do that if you have someone who's financed you who has said, I'm financing you for this particular thing. And for you to say, well, I'm actually going to go to this other thing as well. It's very hard to do that. So fortunately, just by happenstance, I ran into and met a couple of prominent one more stealthy than the other public company uh, gurus who had, who um, just by chance literally just ran into them at the I was parked at the Harvard Club using that as my office and and uh, just sort of had a side chat conversation with one of them a guy named Ira Greenspan and I learned a lot about the prospects and the possibilities of using the public markets at a ridiculously more early stage than would be typically done as a pathway to accessing public capital to even pre-revenue and pre-commercialization. So that led to a partnership uh, where we created PathMed and did a small front door IPO on NASDAQ, $5 million um, in 2016. And we were sort of off to the races, you know, as a public company. And we've obviously raised a lot of capital since then, but there have been many, many, you know, points where we were staring at the abyss and wondering if we'd made the right decision. Well, tell me about that pathway, just the IPO process itself for you. So one was this uh, realization that you had that may be a vehicle that would be appropriate for you to kind of move down, as you said, a more unconventional path for a company at your stage development. But clearly you were successful doing that. But can you talk about the IPO process itself? What, you know, kind of that journey you said, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to go public. Talk a little bit about the mechanics and and sure. that phase of, of getting to the money, getting to that $5 million in the right. IPO. So this is all really the genius of my partners, particularly our Greenspan. So uh, there were some nuances of how we did it that related to how we raised some pre-IPO capital and was able we, we were able to kind of check the boxes uh, of what you needed to, to be listed on NASDAQ because it relates to the mm -hmm. size of your float and the number of investors and so on and so forth. But the hard work was raising that $5 million. And most of that, nearly all of that, was raised by the founders of the company by just picking up the phone or going through LinkedIn and contacting folks. And, and you know, we had a, we had people who, someone who invested $500,000, I mean, a lot of people invested $100 <laughs> and, yeah. and every and every denomination in between. So in that sense, it wasn't, it was a best efforts deal. It wasn't an underwritten deal. There's no way we could have gotten a bank to, at that stage. To, right. uh, but, you know, there were other options like Reg A Plus had just come along the line. There are reverse mergers and things like that, that would have been theoretically options. But we were fortunate enough to do a front door NASDAQ IPO and were able to check the boxes for that listing. And that absolutely put us in a much better position than if we had done if we had done one of those alternatives or even a OTC listing. Those are the basic mechanics of getting off the ground. Now you gotta you know, raise more capital and there were a lot of there was some, you know, fair amount of drama along the way <laughs> as it relates to that. But getting in was just rolling up our sleeves and finding uh, four hundred people who were only invested in a, in a small IPO. Yeah. So then in that 2016 timeframe, you came public, you had roughly 400 shareholders. And then the next day, we're a public company CEO, correct? Correct. Yeah. And that's something that... And how, how, 
how is that how has that been yeah. is it maybe describe a little bit of the differences you know that you've you've experienced going in that one day from yeah. you know a private company innovator heart surgeon to then a public company ceo so when we we sold our company vortex to a public company to angel dynamics and i remember after we sold them, I would listen to the to Joe DeVivo, the CEO's quarterly calls. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. They're, you know, they're he just bought this cool technology, you know, which we thought was great, was our technology. And all the analysts wanted to talk about was, you know, bips on his on the on the margin, you know? Yeah. And really, you know, your gross margin went your, yeah, your right. margin went from this to that, right? And and it just seemed rather painful. Right. And I and I remember saying at that point in time, yeah. boy. I, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> you know, that just sounds like, you know, it almost sounded like handcuffs. So, but on the other hand, it was exhilarating. You know, NASDAQ does a hell of a job making the bell ringing ceremony, you know, dramatic with the music pumping and, you know, the, 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 the lights flashing and the Times Square. So, yeah, so that, so it's, it, it starts yeah. off, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of energy that gets generated by that. There's a lot of, um, and, you know, we, our stock went through the roof because we had no float. Everybody who bought was people we know were planning on holding for the long, long haul. And so it was a bit nerve-wracking at the beginning because it's a lot of pressure. You know, you see the stock go up and you have to think, God, yeah. we better backfill this with some real value. So I just kind of learned, you know, on the, on the, you know, it was my first rodeo, as I say, and I learned on the job that you had to, you know, some very important principles, which I've kept to today, which is that you have to be, transparent you have to communicate you have to communicate real stuff not fluff as much as there's a sort of pressure when there's downtime when there's not sort of meaningful news that you avoid just trying to fill the pipeline of press releases with with fluff but that you have a good strategy to communicate the positive news because as a public company you know that's what the market's looking for the market's looking for for news that you're executing on your on your strategy and also to be available and accessible to investors, you know, investors want to talk to you. And we had a policy where I would respond to small investors who had 100 shares and, and, and large alike that eventually had to change. And we built a, a, a really great investor relations infrastructure to handle that, handle that volume. But the spirit of those early days where people would just track me down and ask me about their 100 shares in my company, that spirit is still, yeah. still there today. Um, and, I, you know, I just always looked at whether it was private funding or public funding. I always, and this sounds a bit corny, but I always very much took the solemn duty <laughs> of taking somebody else's money and, and trying to put it to work, you know, without, without yeah. guarantees, but trying to put it to work. I, I really took, took that quite seriously. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that was an important attitude to take. But And uh, just one kind of follow-on question to that, and then we'll transition and talk a little bit about, you know, other aspects of, of your journey as well. But just fascinated by your success, you know, going down this, this pathway. If you kind of fast forward to present day, how has that strategy played out with regards to your original goal and vision to kind of build a, a company with a, with a pipeline and that had, like you said, kind of diversified potential impact. Again, at the end of the day, you know, you're developing very important products that could help patients. So the aim, you know, right. the, the end game, of course, is not only financial return, but, you know, helping patients in key yeah. areas where those needs are, are unaddressed. How has that played out with regards to kind of your original vision to kind of build a company with a diversified portfolio? Yeah, it's really played out to the point now, and I'll talk a little bit more detail about it, where I really feel like we've accomplished that vision, but it's an expanded vision. It's actually more than we had actually contemplated. But it, there was a lot of hard times getting there. I mean, raising capital, I don't want people to think that you go public and then suddenly the capital starts pouring in. I mean, we, you know, in less than a year after we went public, we'd pretty much spent that $5 million and we were sure. looking for the next, the next hit and it wasn't there. And we took some very painful capital, you know, warrant laden, you know, we did the rights offering, which, which turned out okay, but a variety of flavors of fairly complex, somewhat complex financial instruments in order to keep the lights on. And it gave us some time to advance products, to bring in new technologies and so forth and to get us where we are. So where we are today is very much what we had hoped for, which is that we have at the parent level of have met a public company that collectively with it itself and with its subsidiaries has raised approximately $250 million over over the last uh, six years, just under six years. And we have built a shared services kind of business model where the parent has 
now in-house, very much in contrast to our early endeavors where we had one employee, where we have now over 100 employees and we have a shared services model where all aspects of the development of not just medical devices, we've expanded into diagnostics and digital uh, health, that functionality is available, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's product development, regulatory, finance, HR administration, even a CLIA laboratory, all of that we have at the level. And we can share that services amongst business units within the company, like our carpal tunnel product or our infusion technology, or with actual standalone subsidiaries like Lucid Diagnostics and Various Health, which can focus on their mission. So we have this you know, fully non-diversified parent that is willing to do anything in the broader medical technology uh, space across these three sectors. But then we have subsidiaries or business units that are highly focused on fairly narrow fields. Okay. And in Lucid's case, it's focused entirely on the commercialization of these diagnostic technologies. So the model has really turned out great and very much consistent with that original vision of remaining diversified, providing the PADMED level investors economies of scale right. and risk mitigation and all the things that come with that, but providing the subsidiary investors pure play opportunities as well. So a lucid investor could say, look, I'm really not interested in that diversified play. I'm a diagnostic investor. I'd like to invest in in, in a pure play diagnostic company with a lot of promise. Yeah, no, I think that's really innovative, that whole approach. And the beauty of it too is that, you know, you get the value creation that comes from the platform at the PavMed level that can go into many different domains and applications, as you've pointed out. As you go further downstream, going from a platform, the expertise starts to specialize, you know, at different therapeutic areas or diagnostic versus device, as, as you know. And so you've creatively, I think, designed a real model there that's, uh, that's interesting. And it gives us the, uh, the the really important thing and the fun of it. Yeah. Remember, I yes, said one the of the fun. reasons why we did this, we want to have fun, is that we actually have the opportunity to build, continue to build the pipeline. Now, the way we're building the pipeline is a little different. It's not as completely undifferentiated as it was at the beginning, where we were more likely to look at things that are synergistic with things we're already doing and so forth. But, you know, we have the ability and we have the, you know, as a public company, we're not beholden. This is not encumbered capital. You know, we can do things that we think are in the broad interest of our shareholders. So we can go out and license the technology and lucid diagnostics when we had no prior experience in diagnostics and, uh, and we're able to compete with, you know, Cook and uh, other large companies in, in securing that and just jumping in feed first into an entire different sector than what we had been working on previously. So that continues. We're, a lot, we're able to continue to build a portfolio. Well, one of the things that I've begun to pay a lot more attention to, you know, over the course of my career in, in building life sciences companies here in Chicago has been the observation that ecosystems can become important to supporting the development of companies. But I think that, you know, you grew your company in what I would probably describe as a as a less developed ecosystem, probably at the time that you were getting your companies off the ground. And I know that that ecosystem has continued to build and thrive and develop. But, but do you have any comments or thoughts around the importance of having others around you that are familiar with what you're doing that can kind of pump you up when you're down and, and maybe relate to what you're saying or push you, you know, in times when, you know, you, you need to be pushed and, and just a familiarity to that. Any comments around how that shaped your strategy even? Yeah, absolutely. Just to be clear, we did grow this company through a broad ecosystem with really key critical partners. We have we have a longstanding relationship with uh, Sage Product Development, which is a product development shop in Massachusetts. Our diagnostics work has been closely aligned with Research DX, a contract diagnostic company across the board. Regulatory, every aspect of what we do, we started with a small cadre. 15, 20 people working with a broader ecosystem of dozens of, I used to joke, not joke, I used to say, you know, on my calls, I said, we're, you know, at, at any moment in time, we have dozens of people working on our products, even though we were a company of less than 20 people at the time. And so, so what's happened is not so much that we haven't, um, that we didn't start with an ecosystem, is that we've had the luxury of being able to pull that functionality and build and transition some of the functionality in-house, okay. building a bigger team as it makes sense for the company and the portfolio. So, for example, we just recently announced that we acquired our own CLIA laboratory from our partners from Research DX, yeah. but we're still working with them. Research DX still manages our lab and so forth, and so everything is sort of can happen at a steady, at the pace that makes sense for the company while we still 
depend quite a bit on outside resources that are within our ecosystem. So the, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. It, it, you know, whether you're just putting up your shingle and starting getting started or later having a robust ecosystem of real process experts, people you can go to with often very narrow expertise on things that are important for you to develop is critical at every stage. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the different sectors that you've toggled gracefully between from nonprofit to private to public and even government. Talk a little bit about the breadth of that and kind of what have you learned about each type of enterprise that you can share with the audience? So that's really an interesting question. So I've gotten involved in some philanthropic activities, as you hinted at the beginning, dominated by my work at Human Rights Watch, which was driven by my own and my family's experience dealing with, you know, tyranny and bloody tyranny during the 70s and and, and some other areas in, in politics as well. And I think I think what drives all of that is sort of a um, kind of a core belief in that you need to stand up and show up and be, be involved in things that have an impact on yourself, on your family, on the various concentric circles, on your community and the broader world. So that's just a fundamental principle that I try to live by. And I do that. I try to show up and be involved and participate. You do you do mention an important thing. I've actually learned a lot in both directions. There's a lot of, there's a lot to be learned on the nonprofit side from for-profit organizations and vice versa. And one of the things I'm actually quite proud of is that soon after joining the Human Rights Watch board, uh, I was asked to be part of an ad hoc committee to help restructure the management structure of that organization. And I really learned a lot about the challenges of not-for-profits in doing so, uh, but also the importance uh, even though the mission is often quite different, it's not increasing shareholder value. Obviously, it, it, they're, they're different. Uh, it's a completely different mission. You know, the need for having the necessity of having you know really good organizational structures, management structures, reporting structures that mimic and governance structures that mimic the corporate world is key. And so, I was really, really great to, to see the impact of some of that work and to leveraging some of the, my experiences on the corporate side there. Uh, you know, look, in terms of politics, it's it's all about my kids, honestly, and my family and my future grandkids. I, I just feel, um, you know, some people say I don't, I'm not involved in politics. I, I'm not ideologically political. I just feel like there is um, that, again, we have to stand up and, and, and try to improve the world and politics is life. Most of the most people don't have the luxury of being able to ignore politics because it actually affects the, it truly affects their day to day life and the and the quality of it. So, I've tried to participate in, in certain ways. And, I, and the and the other example is in I've, I'm, I joined the board of Advamed, which is our industry association. Sure. I was asked to serve on that. Very similar thing. Just trying to leverage my experiences to be helpful to provide input, but also to to be there at the table trying to help advance. You know, broader interests in this case, the interests of the industry and the and the stakeholders that it serves. Well, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the impact of political disruption just on health systems, uh, communities, including scientific communities. In fact, I I recently read you know an article on European universities that are now hiring Ukrainian scientists. Could actions like that help important research otherwise disrupted by war endure? Or any examples of you know, kind of what comes from that disruption, trying to look at the the atrocities that are happening, but what innovation might emerge, you know, in, in the face right. of that crisis? Well, you remember, I was a phys- an aspiring physicist prior to this, and we, are, we have a great example of that, right? That much of the revolution of physics happened, was driven, a lot of it was driven by Jewish physicists who were fleeing the Holocaust, or just generally anti-Semitism in Europe. I mean, you know, Einstein being an example of that. So, you know, there is sort of this, dichotomy between the universality of science and innovation and human development and politics, whether it be local, regional politics or or geopolitics. And it's tough because, I mean, there's a lot of question right now about, you know, how the world should engage with Russian scientists, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which 
there was controversy about how to deal with Nazi scientists, right? But right. so we're we're reliving many you know the, the challenges that we have in the past. But I, I think one other way I'd kind of approach your question, you know, relates to the kind of very distressing situation we've seen over the last couple of years of the incredible politicization of science in this country, and how your identity, your ideologic or your tribal identity, literally defines which medication you think is the right one to treat this uh, pandemic and demonizing public health officials and scientists across the board. And it's incredibly, it's incredibly troubling and really, really, you know, hard not to be disillusioned by the whole thing because, um, you know, science really should be science. People expect perfection from science. It's not science is progress and technology. It's not perfect. It requires evolution. It's a process. Yeah. It's all a process. And, uh, politicization of it by the population and by certain leaders in the population looking to take advantage of it for political gain yeah. is really disgusting. And it's led to led to lives being lost. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in spite of all that, you know, what emerged, you know, with these novel delivery approaches through mRNA and just Herculean efforts of logistics to go from discovery of the vaccine in record time, approval by the FDA in record time for safe and effective vaccines for a handful of companies, and then equally important, their ability to scale and distribute the vaccines. So we're certainly beneficiaries, you know, despite all that pressure or division, the availability of, of innovation. And I just feel like that will continue to flourish. And we've seen numerous examples, whether it be around a geography, an ecosystem, whether it's in response to uh, a health threat like COVID or uh, political disruption, or, you know, I, I go back and just closer to home, you know, Chicago always points to the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. The innovation arises through disruption. And yeah. when we look at kind of what happened in Chicago thereafter, it rebuilt itself into a global center on the heels of, you know, entrepreneurs as Chicago evolved over time. So there are numerous examples of this. You look at, you know, ecosystems like Boston and Kendall Square and, and uh, you know, the Bay Area and Palo Alto and what emerged out of the you know, semiconductor research. And I'm just fascinated by the way that through crisis, innovation tends to, to scale and, and develop. Are there any areas that you think, you know, we should be paying attention to in bioscience that you're really excited about that you think will start to emerge here in the next decade? I mean, there certainly are a lot of areas in the biotech space that I don't pretend to be an expert on, whether it's CAR-T or whether it's CRISPR, and, you know, that are just mind-boggling in terms of their potential impact on disease. So that's something that, and all the kind of personalized nature Something people have been talking about for 30 years, we're actually seeing it today, which is which is remarkable. In, in areas that I have more direct uh, on the medical technology side, the boom in diagnostics and using genomic techniques and the next generation sequencing techniques to really hone diagnostic tools and, again, personalize care in many ways through diagnostics, I think, is going to continue to have a dra- dramatic impact. And the other one that we're just getting involved with now is digital health, and that's a kind of a hodgepodge term that covers a lot of things, but just the overall application of digital tools to not just wellness, there's a lot, there's always been some, you know, activity there and there's a lot more of that, but but really to healthcare products and technologies that can that can dramatically enhance care, that can shift the venues of care from more complex, expensive venues to even, you know, hospital at home concepts along those lines. I I was at the Emerging MedTech Summit last week, and I've been there the last two years. And the one thing that just blew me away was how much digitalization has penetrated almost every conversation, (laughs) you know, every tool, every, Mm -hmm. uh, everything has a digital element to it, a digital component to it. And there's just some amazing things going on with AI and machine learning. Yeah. And wouldn't you say kind of the resulting accrual of that data, whether it's through remote management for heart failure patients, you know, or flow sensor for hydrocephalus patients, collecting data and then building databases upon which you can do predictive analytics to be even more effective at delivery of medicine. So this whole idea of, you know, companion diagnostics on one hand or a collection of data on the other for better precision. We always talk about precision medicine, personalized care, but truly that is what is happening. It's the, it's almost the confluence of these things, information, diagnostic tools, and then therapeutic intervention that seem to be really accelerating at a, at a rapid pace. 
You, you, you absolutely nailed it. It's 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 both. It's the it's the having custom diagnostics to guide care, and on the other end, having data to drive increasingly sophisticated algorithms to improve care algorithms broadly, but also to personalize care. That's that's where it's at right now. It's really really exciting, and 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 you need the data, and you need the data analytics. You need those tools in order to do so. And I think anybody in med tech who's not focused at least in some degree on, on on the data they're generating and how to analyze it and, and utilize it to improve their products is, is missing out. Well, and I'm interested in your perspective too, that there's this dimension of, you know, developing the science and the technology, achieving regulatory success with FDA approval, where in the case that the product is, is regulated. But, you know, for the audience, I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, at the end of that process, the product needs to be delivered and paid for. It seems, you know, that, that CMS and other payers are also beginning to evolve in a direction to reward and support innovation, particularly around digital diagnostics, precision, all the things we're talking about here. Do you have any comments around the importance of, you know, at the end of the day, to commercialize a product and get it to patients, there needs to be a willing payer? Yeah, I think I think if you look at the two big external obstacles that medical that that in a medical device innovation or technology innovation faces between regulatory and our regulatory and reimbursement, right? Those are the two big unknowns. I think the FDA has actually moved fairly quickly for a large, you know, uh, you know governmental bureaucracy in in understanding how and in, in trying to learn how to appropriately regulate you know these new technologies. Reimbursement is a lot slower. I mean, sure, we have remote patient monitoring codes, which many of us are looking to leverage as we bring biosensor-driven data collection um, monitoring systems, and that's great. The whole telemedicine, the, the accommodation of telemedicine by uh, CMS and, and and the federal government during the pandemic. It's been great. It's taught everybody a, a lot about the advantages and where telemedicine fits in in the in the continuum of care. But there's a lot of concern that as the pandemic hopefully cools off, that we won't build on that and that we'll sort of regress back to the old ways of doing things. So I'm a little bit more. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say skeptical. I'm sort of there has been progress. There are tools available. But I'm, but yeah, but the reimbursement angle is is going to be is going to remain tricky and remain a source of friction, I think, for progress in this area. So I just hosted a podcast with Kristen Holmes, um, and she works at a sleep technology company uh, with a wearable called Whoop. And she brought up how athletes take sleep seriously because they can see the difference in their performance. Do you get enough sleep? And if you do, how do you relax your mind and body when there are so many moving parts in your life? And uh, I'm asking for a friend. That is a really sore subject. <laughs> so, well, answer, we're very provocative on this podcast. The answer is no, I do not get enough sleep. And uh, if my wife or other other folks, my colleagues were, uh, you know, my colleagues who get, you know, 4 a.m. emails, not somewhat routinely for me, would also agree. But that's not to say that I don't understand and appreciate the importance of that. And maybe I maybe I'll take a look at that at the at that product. Maybe that could help. It's very hard when you're sort of driven and you're and you're trying to build something and and there's just so much going on and getting pulled at so many different angles. It's hard. I, one of the things that I find difficult is like you know during the day with the barrage of emails and you know just 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 so much. There's very little time to just kind of sit down and actually work on something in a thoughtful, deep way over a couple hours. And the only time I find that I can do that is is into the evenings and, and I've kind of learned that. The other problem, I'll, I'll take some of the blame personally, but I'll, I also blame my surgical training because, you know, when you're, when, when we were training, it's a little bit better now. It was a hundred hours a week. You know, you'd be in the hospital for sometimes 72 hours straight with almost no sleep. So I'm pretty well trained <laughs> to be able to function and to do surgery on like to do surgery on no sleep. So I'm a little bit, that's a little bit of a, uh, you know, albatross I wear and I've got to figure out how to shed that, but I, I'm paying a little more attention to it. I'm yeah. And believe me, I'm not, I'm not judging you. I'm trying to learn from my audience. Oh, I know you're not. You know, <laughs> I, I'm judging myself. It's just something that, that I, that I, I don't, I don't wear as a badge of honor, yeah. honestly, it's just, it, it is what it is, but, but we all do need to focus more on on wellness, and you know we've we've been doing that a little bit. You know, one of the things that that when you grow a company beyond, you, you know, when you have a company of fifteen to twenty people, you can have sort of a special forces mentality where everyone's rolling up their sleeves and just you know dig. But once you get bigger, you really have to pay much more attention to 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 wellness and to work sure. balance, balance, pacing, pacing, yeah, and pacing mm -hmm. across because otherwise you'll lose good people. And yeah. 
so even over the last six months or so, we've paid a lot more attention to that. And, and I think that will trickle up to me as well. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Yeah. As a company evolves, yeah. Yeah, the, right. the, the pace needs to steady as the organization grows right. and, and yeah. develops. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that we talk a lot about here at Portal Innovations is just the importance of community. And community can be defined in a lot of different ways. But, you know, when you're building a startup company, a community can mean talent, community investors, service firms, you know, CROs, you know, medical institutions, even academic institutions can be part of that community. Um, one of the things that we think is really important, especially as we think about med tech and and, and biotech companies, growth opportunities given the, the surge in scientific innovation, everything we just talked about here with the, the promise of what's on the horizon, you know, uh, companies will need to grow and scale and we don't, we don't have the talent pool to really fill the ranks of all these organizations. And so really working to try to provide access to and exposure to a much broader audience, uh, even in neglected parts of the population, we think is going to be a really important you know, driver for whether or not the U.S. can really hit its full potential at scale and growing and, and scaling great med tech and biotech companies. I just wondered what your perspective is on that in terms of how we can best as an industry think about welcoming the, the most diverse talent pool in the self-interest of, of the industry itself and, of course, to the benefit, you know, of a broader population. I've, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I've really thought a lot about that and learned a lot about these topics over the recent years. And I got I do have to give Advimed credit for helping me kind of, you know, expand my horizons on that. You'd be, you might be surprised, right? It's sort of an industry trade lobbying organization, but Advimed has taken a very strong stance. The former chairman, uh, the chairman when I joined, uh, Kevin Lobo, who's the CEO of Stryker, made it his, his you know, one of his central goals during his tenure to focus on diversity and inclusion in the industry. And what I've learned from that are a couple of things that you said, which is there's obviously a social justice aspect of that, that everyone should have the opportunity independent of their of their background or um, but that there's a it's a self-interest matter. And he made he made a very strong point. And I it was fun to watch somewhat hardened kind of business folks start to come around to the notion that this is ultimately uh, important for business yeah. that that excluding you know we're a diverse country, and if we're not uh, tapping into the broader uh, community, then we're we're selling ourselves short. And yeah. um, there's a long ways to go. Uh, with I think we're making at least in the industry we're making a bit more progress with women than we are with ethnic minorities for a lot of reasons that would take a long time to discuss. But at least there's a focus on it. At least people are talking about it, even at the public company level. These you know the ESG push is quite dramatic mm -hmm. and quite surprising to me to see corporate America. You know, uh, some people might cynically say it's it's sort of you know superficial, mm -hmm. but I don't think it is. Yeah. I think it's it, it it needs a lot of work and there needs it needs some depth. But I think it's actually um, real, and so and ultimately it is it is a matter of better business. Also, the other the other thing that I hadn't crossed that wasn't on my radar, which is now, which is it's not simply about the people working in the industry and uh, and supporting it. It's the the ultimate clients, which are patients. Exactly. Right? And, That's often overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I, I, I must say I wasn't on my radar until I started, you know, learning about some of the initiatives with an uh, um, that focus on the fact that we should be, you know, we need to, we need to um, uh, embrace diversity because our, you know, our ultimate clients, our patients uh, are diverse. And um, and and we have to win. And those are the folks that we're serving. And and I think even again back to the self-interest. If you're just a capitalist, you know, I mean, you're yeah. overlooking you know large market opportunities um, right. in these diverse populations that you know have have different needs that really have been neglected. And so I think that is. Uh, as I'm the same as you, I kind of learned that along the way that the importance of not only, you know, building a company in a diverse way, but serving diverse populations and opening up new markets is is a big part of it as well. Yeah, I mean, especially think about the the personal, what we were talking about earlier, personalized digital approaches to things. You you need buy-in from patients to, to and, and I, I've, heard, I've read some stuff um, recently that suggests that the, that many of these digital health platforms are not are, are targeting very narrow audiences you know and that uh, and, and that's to their detriment and so um, um, so I think as, as you said there's a you know you can um, 
uh, yeah, there's a, there is a social justice element to this, but at the end of the day, it's good for business. And I'm looking, looking forward to, to the industry continuing to embrace it. So as we wrap up, I first want to say I'm so excited and honored to have this conversation with you and share your story with our audience. I'm also really excited to, to follow your success as you continue to build your companies and deliver you know, novel breakthrough med tech uh, applications, both on the diagnostic and device side of things. So first and foremost, thanks again for being part of the conversation. I, in, in closing, uh, my, my question to you is, again, taking it back to the beginning, did you ultimately have this aim? Was this always your North Star? Did you think you'd find yourself in this position? And maybe you can, for, for your uh, purposes, you were, uh, for the first part of your life, as, as I understand it, you know, you were, you were not going to follow this path. You were kind of moving away from it because your father was, you know, kind of, it was assumed that you're going to move in that direction. So I understand that, you know, it may not have been, you know, as a, as a young child that you were, you know, aiming toward this North, North Star, but along the way, can you imagine that you would be in the position that you're in today? And in knowing that, what advice could you offer, you know, um, the next generation, someone behind you that might follow in your footsteps? I think I can answer that at sort of two levels, right? So the, at, at the kind of the principal level of doing, you know, something exciting that involves, you know, some level of innovation and, and, and be, you know, thinking about problems and solving problems, um, sure. You know, I think that's, that's, that's stuck through, you know, the, the, the sort of windy road that I've taken to get to this point. But with regard to the specifics, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, I've never done that. I've never really been someone to plan, okay, you know, I'm going to do these 18 steps in this particular sequence. And, you know, it's just not, not who I am. And I actually like the fact that I, that I'm not that scripted. Um, that that you know, you, obviously you have to plan, and in, in certainly running a company, you have to plan, you know, years in advance and understand where you're where you're heading. But you know, what I've told folks that I've worked with and others that I might have um, counseled is that, you know, the 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 specificity of that plan, you know, it's okay for it to be fuzzier the longer you go out. Yeah, sure, you need to know what you need to do this week or the next month or in the next year. But as you start getting to the out years. You know, certainly general, certain general principles about about innovating and problem solving and, and serving communities and so forth is important. But it's okay for it to be a bit fuzzy because, you know, the, 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 the most interesting and most productive paths will kind of um, declare themselves. And, and that, I think that's probably a good way to sum up my, my, uh, my winding journey to get to this point. Now that that and that's good news because I don't know I I think about you just even you know my own kids in college and you know the 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 influence of the um the education system is always kind of you know pick a major you know what yeah. and, and make sure you have the internship in in that major yeah. and and what you're uh, you're kind of debunking that that's a requirement you know there you, in your case you know maybe math was a key thing that kind of you know stayed throughout your the fabric of what what guided you but the way you applied it was like you said in many many diverse ways, um, if that's one example. And I just think that's a very hopeful statement for, you know, um, <laughs> a broad part of the population yeah. that doesn't know what they want to do as they graduate from college, but just always honing in on kind of what is your, your yeah. North Star. And there's one element I've talked to my kids about as well, which is that, yes, you have to be willing to explore, but you can't wander aimlessly either, right? You have to, true, true. society yeah. demands that we lock down certain things, right? So it's true. So at some point, my son had to decide, okay, I'm going to go to law school. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but I think I've decided that the paths that I that I want to take, uh, you know, involve passing through law school. That's fine. Yeah. You go to law school, you yeah. do a lot of grunt work to get to get that to check that box from a societal point of view to give you the tools and a platform to move to the next level i think there's you know there is some a certain reality check as it relates to what society expects yeah. us the boxes they it expects us to check but that doesn't mean you can't have a uh, an evolving path that, that that things have to be fully scripted which i think is good to avoid well said well said, 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 said. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.